Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Asher bakarbanu mikol hamim, Venatan lanu et torato, Baruch atah Adonai, Noten haTorah. Amen. May this be to the merit of hastening the redemption speedily and soon in our days. Baruch Abba B'Shem Adonai. Amen. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, as well, I would like to ask that you would heal all of your people of Kalal Yisrael unto the coming of Mashiach and make us ready to receive your Torah. Amen. So Shavuot is coming up and we're about halfway there. So Baruch Hashem. We are still in the split parashot for the diaspora and for Eretz Yisrael. So in the quotation of Rabbi Abraham Greenbaum, who is Mr. Legit, I like to call him Rabbi G-Baum, that he's so legit. Actually, I'm, I think I'm going to change his name to Rabbi GQ because he's just, yeah, that's what we're going to do. Rabbi GQ, that's what his name is now. All right. So uh, you can check him out on Azamra. Uh, he has a YouTube channel. And I mean, he's like, like, you know, one of those water fountains that just water is just trickling, you know, and it's just peaceful. That's how he draws, you know, and it's just like he's dropping all sorts of amazing insights and it's just smooth. Kind of reminds me of Rabbi Trugman a little bit. So, but anyway. So this week for the Agarit to the Romans, we are finally in chapter two, and we will be correlating this with Parsha Behar. So keeping up with Yisrael on the Torah portions. So before I get started, I want to drop some quick gematria on Behar. Behar is Bet, Hey, Resh. And um, Benny B, who is with Ladder of Jacob, he actually, Bezrat Hashem, soon will be releasing commentary on this parasha for uh, some, get you some insights. And he is apparently going to correlate it to the Sermon on the Mount, the Drosh Hahar, actually, that Mashiach started in Matit Yahu chapter 5. Right after saying he does not abolish the Torah or the prophets or any of the Tanakh, because that is what's called scripture. So Messiah does not abolish any scripture. Scripture is not the letters. Scripture is not uh, revelation. But those are excellent uh, writings and commentaries on Tanakh that are really, really beautiful. And so uh, it's also interesting to note that Revelation is actually considered a Jewish apocrypha writing. So just kind of like with Jubilee and um, Enoch and um, there's another one. Can't think of it off the top of my head right now. Enoch, Jubilee. What's the other one? I know there's another one. It's escaping me right now. But, you know, Brukashem, there's books like that that, uh, you know, you could read. So, oh, Yasher, the Sefer Yasher. Jasher is the English, which it shouldn't be Jasher because there are no J's in Hebrew. But, you know, I digress. But anyway, so it's important to note that um, because one of the things that <clears throat> as I was preparing for this particular uh, section, 
And yes, we will be going way over 30 minutes. Well, you probably know that now since Neri Roke and I don't podcast together anymore for this particular uh <laughs> this group of compilations uh yeah i mean he was my kind of bounds on this but you know i'm free now so yay but anyway um as i was getting ready for this it really struck me that everything was oral you know with the the days of mashiach literally you know like everything going around because, you know, I was actually just kind of doing all my cross-references and everything. And lo and behold, in the Agarit to Corinth, the the first one, so Agarit's olive, uh, the letter, Agarit's letter again. So uh, in chapter 15, he says this. He says, starting in verse 3, For I also passed on to you, First of all, what I also received. And it's interesting because he goes on to talk about Mashiach dying and being raised on the third day, appearing to Kepha, then to the twelve, then appearing to over 500 people. And um, some are still alive currently at that point. So that's 40 years later, almost, because remember, Shaul died a little, a few years before the destruction of the um, the second Beit Hamikdash. So, during the life and the ministry of Shaul, he he was alive while Temple was still in existence. And obviously, the things that are brought down by Josephus, we saw that the Temple was absolutely corrupt and crazy, but. Hashem's mercy was still allowing it to stand and still allowing service to continue on, even though there was a, a major influx of Rome coming in. But obviously that happened in the first temple, because in the first temple, there were even idols set up all throughout the courtyard. You know, you can read Ezekiel and, and check into all that. But either way, uh, that did not disqualify temple from being used for sacrifices because as long as the Tamid offering was offered, atonement was being made, even though sin was still happening. So, yes, the whole picture of Mashiach dying for us while we were yet sinners was literally being exemplified, not only in the pinnacle offering of the Akedah, but literally through the Tamid offering continuing to happen. So that's the the morning and the evening lamb, which is an overall atonement for the whole nation of Israel. So it's just kind of beautiful to think about all that. But anyway, so th when he was writing to Corinth, he was saying, you know, he's passing on information like he's speaking it. It's oral Torah. You know, the only thing written down during the lifespan of any letter, whether it be Kepha or Yaakov or Hebrews or even Revelation or, um, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Yochanan, Acts, you know, all these things were not written down until way later. And, you know, it's really cool to see that what we're reading as written text was actually just oral. So if we have trouble grabbing a hold of the oral Torah, then we have to first renew our minds and understand that even the oral Torah that we now read from is it started out 
orally. It wasn't written down. It got written down way later, you know, way after the destruction of the temple and way after the disbanding of the Sanhedrin. So it was really crucial that the 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 insights and commentary from the Chazal, even from Moshe himself, from Yehoshua, from the elders, from the prophets like Shamuel and Yeshayahu, Haggai, Mordecai, you know, Esther, all these different insights. Even Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, has commentary that we have in our oral writings. So this goes like way, way back you know, goes as back as far as to Adam. You know, we learn about the Corbanote that Adam taught to his children, you know, Chayin and Hevel, and by extension to uh, Shait, which is Seth, you know. And so Shem and Eber, when they started their yeshiva, you know, what kind of Torah were they teaching? They were teaching what was handed down from their father, because Shem's father is Noach. And so where did Noach get it from? He got it from his father. Where did his father get it from? His father, you know, all the way down. So, you know, I just thought that was something that was very interesting because I always find myself going, why am I doing commentary to the Agarit to the Romans? And why is it such a big deal to even you know, spend time and spend hours, you know, going through these passages and really straightening them out. You know, it's not that they have no value because they have lots of value. They're actually very, very beautiful illuminations to what we read in the Torah portions and in the Haftarah portions. So, you know, obviously these letters were written for a reason. So, what we are doing today is reaching back into something, you know, that was considered enrichment. And so, you know, to understand that context, I think is crucial and it's key. And that's why I've taken this first part of this podcast to really spend some time bringing that out. That is absolutely against the grain to today's believers, especially followers of Messiah Yeshua, because first of all, once you can get over the hurdle of church and Rome and Vatican, Catholicism, once you can get over that giant hurdle, you know, and then start to get into understanding the Torah, then understanding the prophets, you know, the things that Yeshua taught himself from, you know, like Yeshua, when he taught and he spoke about himself, when he ministered to anyone, he always used what's called the scriptures. And anytime we're going through the canon of the Basora and the letters and Acts and Revelation, you know, it's important to know that anytime we see the word scripture, it's always the Torah, the prophets and the writings. And again, I like to point out that Tehillim is the equivalent of Torah, and it's also considered the original Brit Hadashah the original text of renewal of the covenant because Talim teaches a man how to renew himself and uh, breeds to Hashem. And that's brought down by Shlomo, a.k.a. Ish Pela. So uh, he is our Talim guy, which is so funny because, you know, Shlomo wrote the Mishle and Kohelet, but, you know, like, it's just really funny because you would think Shlomo would be the Mishle guy, but he's actually the Talim guy. So shouts out to my Habibi, uh, Toda Rabah, for all your insights that you always share. 
So if you want more information on Ted Lean, please talk to him. He is like the expert. He might not say he is, but as far as I'm concerned, um, I, I'd literally, I'd defer, defer to him if I want to know some Tehillim stuff. So, and usually he ends up sharing things that I'm like, and you didn't tell me that earlier, you know? And so obviously I'm joking, half kidding, I guess. But sometimes, you know, I'm like, come on, man, you got all this bread over here and you know, I like hollow. You know, throw a brother a little piece of holla, you know, give me some crumbs from the master's table kind of thing. But anyway, so enough of that. So uh, just to go back to this Corinthians passage, I want to say something that I think is important for everyone to know, because Shaul is the most quoted um, passage uh, from the Bible, like Using his writings, it seems to be the most quoted thing. So T-shirts, bumper stickers, uh, faith, you know, encapsulated seems to be Shaul because apparently most of his letters take up the majority of what's called the Brit Hadashah canon, you know, but it's important to know half of his writings are disputed. You know, it's like, did he write it or did his Talmudim write it? And we know uh, that in Judaism, if a Talmud is writing in the name of their Rebbe, obviously that's as good as the Rebbe's word. But at the same time, with the manipulation of the text, you know, that has been done over the centuries with the fragmentation, parts of letters and and uh, responses and questions and things like that, that we don't have. We have all these bits and pieces. And so it's shaky ground at best to base your whole faith off of these writings. If you can't find it in the Torah, then you might want to like stop, rewind, reset, you know, and check it out because really when it comes down to it, nowhere in the scriptures, and again, scriptures meaning Tanakh, does it say Messiah, Yeshua, we should believe in him. And, you know, he is the, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It literally doesn't say that in the written Torah anywhere. And the only way we know about a Messiah at all is through the oral Torah. You have to know some Talmud. You have to know some Midrash. You have to know some Kabbalah. You know, you have to know some Hasidic teachings. So you have to know the Jewish stuff, pretty much. So that's very, very jarring and shocking because most times, at least in my experience, because this is how I grew up, the only way I knew that Yeshua HaMashiach is Messiah and I should place my trust in him and attach myself to him is only from the Basora accounts and only because that was a tradition of the church. And now being in synagogue, it's just kind of like, okay, so my foundation does not come from the Basora. It actually comes from the Torah, which you can find the Basora in the Torah, which is why the account about the road to Emmaus is such a beautiful thing to have. Because Yeshua, when he's walking with these gentlemen, post-resurrection, he's saying he started with the Torah and the prophets and taught about himself. 
you know, and it caused the hearts of those men to burn within them, which is the essence of Lapid Judaism. This is why we are called the P. This is why we're on fire for Hashem. This is why the power of the resurrection is adamantly apparent to us because of that fact. Like Yeshua, his spirit, you know, which is the Ruach HaKodesh, which is the spirit of Hashem, because Kol Echad, right? So that's happening. You know, our hearts are burning within us when we're reading all of these beautiful Jewish literature passages. We're like wanting to throw stuff. We're wanting to just call the police all the time because it's just kind of like, what? You know, and it's just like this kind of information never comes out in church. And people who follow Yeshua don't want to call themselves Jews you know, because of why? Because they haven't been taught these things. And people are always shocked when they find out that I'm a Jew. And then they're like, but you believe in Messiah, you know? And I'm like, of course, just like Shaul, just like Kepha, just like Yochanan, just like Yaakov. And it's like, who are those people? Okay, Shaul, Paul, whose name is really Saul. Paul is like a colloquial name that he was given. And, you know, Kepha is Peter, which his real name is Shimeon, Simon. And then you got Yaakov, which everyone calls him James, but his name is really Jacob. And, you know, things like that. And it's just kind of like, so those names aren't known. Yeshua is not even called Yeshua. He's called JC. And it's just like, everyone's attached to JC. However, centuries previous to the Middle Ages, no one called him JC. They called him Yeshua. And it's just kind of like, okay, so why are we so just resistant? And why are we stuck with, if I don't go to church on Sunday, if I don't have a, a small group, if I don't, you know, serve somewhere like in the church and have all these ministries, you know, and, and celebrate, you know, all these other holidays that are nowhere in scripture, like, there's such a, a obstinance, you know, and it's just kind of like, why? That's not the case. Like followers of Yeshua did not fit that mold. Rome was not our headquarters. It was Jerusalem, and it still is Jerusalem, and it will be reinstated fully very soon with the rebuilding of the temple and the return of Mashiach. You know, the language is already restored and now the, the prayer service will be restored and things are going to be in Hebrew. The Leviim are going to be singing praises using the Tehillim that we read about. You know, you, you realize when you read Tehillim that a lot of them are called a song, a song on the, the lyre, a song on the harp, you know, a song on the kinor, you know, and all these kinds of things. And it's like these passages of scripture were sang. And they were saying specifically in Hebrew, English is not the primary language, neither is Spanish, neither is Greek. And it's actually considered a tragedy in history that the Torah was even translated into Greek. But obviously Hashem was not surprised by that. And that's why the um, Septuagint is such a beautiful resource, because with Greek and Rome and all this covering up of everything, it gives us an opportunity to retranslate things back to their original context. Okay, so that was all extra. That's 20 minutes of extra <laughs> information that is not in the parasha. Okay, so uh, 
again, let me try this again. So the Agarit to Corinth, chapter 15, the first letter, um, in verse um, 8, he, Shaul says, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Next verse, for I am the least of the emissaries, unworthy to be called an emissary because I persecuted God's community. In other words, Shaul is saying, you shouldn't even be able to call me an apostle. You know, like I should not be anywhere equated with the 12. You know, and that's just kind of like, skirt, say what? Shaul confesses. That I am the least of all of the 12. So here we are, people quoting Shaul as opposed to quoting Kepha or Yaakov. And it's like, why is that the case? Just because Kepha has, you know, two letters, Yaakov has four, you know, because he has the Basora and then he has his three and then, you know, Yaakov has one. It's just kind of like, just because they don't have a quote-unquote quantity doesn't negate their quality. You know, and Shaul would rather us quote, according to his own words right here, he'd rather us quote Kepha or Yaakov rather than himself, because he's just like, Yeshua actually appeared to those guys, you know, and like they were having their habitation with him he appeared to me but like it was a vision you know it wasn't body flesh soul like walking around for three years together and seeing all the different things happen like he didn't have that and by the way during that time he was actually studying under Gamliel who is actually codified in Talmudic portions and bringing persecution on Hashem's community anyway. So he was adamantly against those who were following Yeshua and and believing and things like that. So I just thought that was really interesting and that really caught me off guard in my studies. And so I just wanted to share that. And Bezrat Hashem, this was a very helpful piece. And I'm actually going to make this one segment just so if anyone wants to uh, have the Garrett actual part, uh, we'll just be able to click straight on that. So I'm going to call this the intro to chapter two, and then uh, I'll be right back with the actual chapter two without any more swerves. And while I'm at it, be my last swerve on my swerves is uh, to quote uh, Behar, the Gematria that I was meaning to get to, like, 20 minutes ago, um, the Gematria of Bahar bet Hey Resh is 207, which if you reverse 207, it's 702. 702 is the same Gematria as Shabbat, Sheen Bet Tav, Shabbat, 702. And back to Bahar being 207, 207 is the same Gematria as Or, which is light as in the light that was in the beginning, which is the light of Mashiach. So the Shabbat, the light of Mashiach, also it is the Gematria of um, 
Zekanim, which are elders, and Zekunim, which is old age. So when you look at the fact of Parsha Behar, this is like primordial wisdom handing down to us. You know, like the light of the Shabbat, the the wisdom of the elders. So uh, anyway, just want to throw that out there. And Baruch Hashem. So that is the end of the intro. And now to chapter two of the Agarit to Rome. All right. And we're back. Okay. So for Agarit to the Romans chapter two, I'm actually going to go through the first four verses. And again, this will be connected to Parsha Behar, which is from Vayikra 25, 1 through Vayikra 26, verse 2. So a little intro to this Torah portion of Behar from Rabbi GQ, uh, which is Rabbi Greenbaum. Uh, it says, Our Parsha of Behar thus begins with the Shemitah cycle in which the land is to be worked and tilled for six years, after which it is to be left fallow throughout the seventh year. The Torah gives us a picture of an idyllic world in which independent owner farmers are raising their wheat and grains for bread and tending their vineyards for wine. After all their gifts to the poor and tithes to the priests and the Levites, etc., during the six years of labor, they are to go a step further in the seventh year. Side note, they're fulfilling the letter of the law, and now they're having they're called to go beyond the letter of the law, even though that beyond happens to be a letter of the law, because again, they're giving all their tithes to the poor, the priests, the Levites, you know, and this is during the six years. And then on the seventh year, they're going to have to completely trust Hashem because now they're going to have to have a Shemitah, which if you're a farmer, that means you have a year off. <laughs> like your land is just going to do whatever it does, whatever grows, grows, and you don't, you're not harvesting. You're not plowing, you're not tilling, you're not sowing, you're not planting. And whatever grows, by the way, it does not belong to you. It belongs to whoever comes to partake of it. So talk about Amuna, okay? But anyway, back to commentary. It says, They are to go a step further in the seventh year, giving their very fields and vineyards back to their true owner. And we know who that is. Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch And it says, in the seventh year, they are not allowed to work their own land. Instead, they must open their gates to everyone so that all can have a share in the fruits from the holy table of God. Remember, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So literally, this earth becomes a table of the master and people get to partake of that table and a Shemitah and a uh, Yovel, which is a Jubilee year. Anyway, <clears throat> continuing, it says, the produce of Yisrael in the Shemitah year has a special sanctity. Even the animals have their share in the fruits of the Shemitah year. For like us, they too are God's guests on his amazing earth. 
The Shemitah cycle is a fundamental rhythm and time designated to help us constantly keep in mind that God is the true owner of all the world around us and of our very selves. End of insight. So now that beautifully overlays with the opening to chapter two of the Agarit to Rome. So since chapter two starts in the middle connecting back to chapter one, I'm actually going to read the last verse from chapter one. So we have some beautiful context and I'm just going to go straight through with the help of Hashem without swerving before getting to all these crazy insights. And again, I'm using the Orthodox Jewish version. Uh, so there is a lot of Yiddish in here. So I will be translating on the fly. So hang on to your seats. Buckle up. Mask on. Here we go. A Garrett to Rome, chapter one, starting in 32, going through chapter two and verse four. All right. Although they have known full well that the just requirements of Hashem, his just gazettes, which is his law, that is that those who practice such things are B'nai Mavid, children of death. Nevertheless, they not only do they do the very same, they not only do the very same, but even give their perverted bracha on those who practice such. And bracha is blessing. So the those who know the full requirements of Hashem and those who practice repressing that are called children of death, which is opposite of the children of light. They not only do that, but they also give a bracha to anyone else who practices these things. So that's not good. So now going into chapter two says, for this reason, you are without terutz, which is an excuse for you yourself, for yourself before an angry God, you, sir, each one of you who passes judgment for in that you pass judgment on the other, you condemn yourself. Okay, judge not lest you be judged, for with the same measure of judgment you will be judged, right? That's from the Drosh Hahar from Mashiach. Again, that's the Matit Yahu 5 through those first chapter or those uh, few chapters there. And it says, continuing on in chapter 2 of Agarit to Rome. Okay, for in that you pass judgment on the other, you condemn yourself, for you practice the very things on which you pass judgment. And we have da'at, which is knowledge, that the judgment of Hashem Hashofet, Hashem, the judge, the true judge. And again, see Rome uh, 132. So we just read that. And then it says against those who practice such things is in accordance with Ha'emet Hashem, which is the truth of Hashem. And again, you can go back to verse 25 in chapter one. Verse three on chapter two. Now it says, you, sir, who pass judgment on those who practice such things and yet do the same yourself. Do you suppose then that you will escape the mishpat Hashem, the judgment of Hashem? Or do you think lightly of the wealth of his nedivut, which is generosity? 
and of his chesed, his kindness, his loving kindness, and of his erech apayim, his slowness to anger and his forbearing, as in Shemot 34, 6, where we find the 13 midot uh, of Hashem, the, the attributes of mercy, where Hashem himself appeared to Moshe and told him how, and showed him actually, not just told him, but showed him how to bring on a, how to stir up Hashem's mercy for, and forgiveness for when we fall short in sin. Okay. So then going on, it says, and of his salvanut, which is his patience, which is actually one of uh, the Musar words. And then, or Musar topics, I should say. And then it says, disregarding the fact that the chesed of Hashem, the kindness of Hashem, which is found in Mashiach, because remember, Mashiach is full of chesed ve'emet, which is kindness and truth. And it says, the fact that the chesed of Hashem is to lead you to teshuva, which is repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is forsaking your current path of lawlessness and returning to Torah, returning to the voice of Hashem, returning to the sound of the shofar. And where does the sound of the shofar come from? Come from the mountain, which is Behar. Okay. So how does this tie in to Parsha Behar? Well, let's begin with the wellsprings of Torah as brought down from Parsha Kedoshim. I read this uh, Cephas Ames uh, drop in a previous podcast, but I want to bring that into here to bridge into what we're talking about. So just before we start, make sure we understand what is what are we trying to connect and what are we trying to to glean from this section of the agarit that we just read so we have individuals who know what Hashem's word is what his requirements are what is the standard we should be upholding but yet individuals are saying yeah i know that's the standard but you know we don't have to do that anymore and we're just going to kind of make it up as we go now the standard is going to be whatever we set it to be it's not necessarily going to be what a shem standard is and if anyone else takes on this same mentality then we also make you feel welcome and we bless you in that so let's make a group about it let's make a faith system about it and let's encourage others and even the world to repress the truth of Hashem set our own standards and move away from the set standards of Hashem as brought forth from the scriptures okay so Hashem is no longer in charge we're in charge and we're going to do it this way and at the expense of Hashem's kindness and of his generosity, of his slowness to anger, because he currently is not outright showing disapproval to us. I know we do have our trials and tribulations. We do have hardships and we are suffering. But of course, that's just a part of life. That's not Hashem's hand at all. No. Okay. And of course, this is tongue in cheek that I'm saying these things because I Obviously, Hashem being slow to anger, he's going to cause 
there to be some consequences for taking advantage of his slowness to anger. And so Hashem, instead of throwing a lightning bolt or turning one into a greasy spot, he's going to cause some things to happen that hopefully get your attention to say, hey, please stop doing what you're doing and please listen to me. Please be an obedient child. You know, I remember as a child, you know, my parents, if I was doing something out of line, uh, well, I would get clothesline, but I did have warnings. You know, it was just like, hey, you act, you keep acting up. I'm gonna give you something. To, I'm gonna give you something to act up about. I'm gonna give you something to cry for. You know, you keep keep doing what you're doing. Just just go ahead. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, my parents would encourage me, you know, to to continue on my path of disobedience because they knew that. I knew by them encouraging me to continue in my disobedience, they were actually saying, I wish you would stop, but I'm going to let you keep going because I'm going to give you an opportunity. Even though you don't deserve an opportunity again, I'm going to give you more opportunity. And the opportunity is stop being disobedient and get in line. Okay. Listen to me. I would rather you not take this course of action, but you know what? Since you want to do that, keep going. Just keep going. Just keep testing me. Keep trying me because you're only making it worse. I keep telling you, don't do that. And you're doing it. And you're not paying any attention to me. You're not giving me any honor. You're not giving me any kavod. I know you know what that word is. You study Musar. You know, it sounds like, you know, getting a beat down. But, you know. Uh, but anyway, so this is interesting because Hashem is the same way. His slowness to anger causes us to think, oh, man, I didn't even uphold Hashem's Torah. And it's been centuries since it's been done. You know, no one's converting to Judaism. Like, if I believe in Yeshua, of course I don't have to convert. I got my, my baptism and I got my Bible and I'm going to church on Sunday. So I'm good. And it's like Hashem's like, um, show me where I commanded you to do that. Show me why I commanded you to fall away from my word. Show me why I told you to choose death instead of choose life. And I told you what choosing life is. Choosing life is following the law of Moses after you've founded that on your trust in me. Because I will let Shaul know to write in his agarit to Rome that through our faith and our trust and our obedience, we, we establish the law. Okay, that's coming up, by the way, just spoiler alert, that's coming up. So when you when you finally come to connect yourself to Hashem through Mashiach, that establishes the foundation for keeping the Torah. Because if you keep the Torah any other way, you know, it's going to ultimately, Bezrat Hashem, if you have a right heart, it'll draw you to Him. But ultimately, if you don't have a heart for Hashem and you try to follow Torah, it's going to lead you into death. You know, the Torah is an elixir of death to those who are disobedient to Hashem. So if you want to say, oh, yeah, of course I follow God's story. Yeah, it's all good, but I don't love him and I really don't want to do it. And if that's your attitude, the more you do Torah, the more you'll actually corrupt yourself and fall away even further. So uh, I've seen that. I actually personally have went that route, and I don't know how I made it back. Obviously, miracles, mishpachah, Hashem, you know, uh, eshechayil to say the to say the most, <laughs> because it was funny that the more I went off the derrick, the more she got on the derrick, and it was like, 
I don't know what you're doing, but you better figure your life out, son. You know, that's what she kind of told me. You know, that's the uh, the Matt Midrash on how my Eshes Chayil was like, boy, you better you better do something. <laughs> but anyway, so that's our context. That's our mind frame. This is why we're going to start in Parsha Kedoshim and work our way up to Bihar and understand who's truly in charge. Is it us or is it Hashem? And if Hashem is in charge, what does that look like? And if Hashem is not in charge, this section of the Agarit is what it looks like. Heaping up judgment on yourself, you're taking advantage of Hashem's kindness and generosity, His uh, forbearance and slow to anger, and you're just, you know, uh, being very disrespectful. So anyway, wellsprings of Torah, i.e., as each Pelag calls it, my name Okay, anyway. So this uh, section of Kedoshim says, again, this is commenting actually on Vayikra chapter 19. Of course, the loving your neighbor and rebuking and all that kind of stuff. So it says in the Sephes, Amos, uh, the, the verse states, you shall surely rebuke yourself with your neighbor. When you rebuke your neighbor, rebuke yourself at the same time. Know that you too have a share in his transgression. Do not cast the entire burden of sin upon him. Only if you will feel guilty and repent together with him, will your rebuke persuade him to repent also. So there's kind of a little bit of rebuke going on here in the Sagara to Rome. So I imagine Shaul would know about this source here from the Cephas Amos about rebuking yourself with your neighbor. So Bezrat Hashem, that's happening. And then this next little drop is from Divrei Torah. It says, in rebuking another, address him in keeping with his qualities, his intellectual abilities, and his character. Do not rebuke another person in terms of your own qualities. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor, is rebuke him as your neighbor, as he is not as you are. Okay, so he's not the same as you are. So in other words, the rebuke has to be tailored to the audience. Okay, so the standards that are being used are not the standards coming from the person who's going to rebuke. The standard is the standard of the person being rebuked. Okay, so that means you kind of have to know who you're talking to. All right. Now, obviously, Shaul would have some experience with this because, again, like we just found out in the Garrett to Corinth in chapter 15, that he himself was actually on the other side of the fence. So there's that. So now, now that we got the rebuking out of the way and understanding how the rebuke should go, let's go into the Kehert Humash on the overview of Bihar. It says Bihar means at the mountain, referring to Mount Sinai, the site of the giving of the Torah. The first verse in this parasha reads, and God spoke to Moshe at Mount Sinai, saying, and then it says, now, as we all know, the bulk of the books of Shemot, Vayikra, and Bamibar was given at Mount Sinai. So why is this fact suddenly emphasized? Because if you're going through the cycle of the Parshot, it seems like Mount Sinai was a long time ago. Like Parshot Yitro, long time ago. 
but it's important to remember the tour is not in chronological order. So when are we at Mount Sinai and when are we traveling through the wilderness and so and so, okay? So it says, there is evidently something about the content of this parasha that is more intrinsically bound up with Mount Sinai than the rest of the Torah. On our own, we are indeed incapable of elevating our environment since we are stuck within it, functioning as part of it. Nature follows the immutable laws of cause and effect, of biological, psychological, and sociological determinism, and every aspect of our lives is subject to these laws. As such, we are prisoners within nature, and, in the sage's words, a prisoner cannot free himself from his own imprisonment. Barakot 5b, Tamud Babli. Only a force from without, so like outside of creation, outside of time, outside of space. The only person I know is that is Hashem. Okay? Remember, Mashiach is a manifestation of Hashem. He is the right arm of Hashem. He is the Torah of Hashem. He is the voice of Hashem. Okay? So only Hashem, basically, can release someone who is locked within. It is the Torah, our link to God's transcendent, infinite will, that endows us with the ability to overcome the limitations of nature and the natural mentalities of our environment, the spiritual bond we forge with God through studying the Torah and observing mitzvot affords us the transcendent strength necessary to break out of the downward cycle of spiritual degeneration. Thus, Parshat Bihar opens with an allusion to the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Key phrase, breaking out of the downward cycle of spiritual degeneration. When you look at repressing truth, falling away from the standards of Hashem, putting your own standards in place, and judging those who keep the standards of Hashem, that means you're a part of the downward cycle of spiritual degeneration, and the only way to break out of that is to go to the mountain, return to Torah. All right, so now going on from there to the Agarit to Hebrews. Chapter 12, starting in 22, says, But you have come to Mount Zion, that is, Ha'ir Ha'elohim Chayim, the city of the living God, to the Yerushalayim in Hashemayim, the Jerusalem in heaven, the Jerusalem above, as brought down in Galatians. So this is absolutely a Kabbalistic drop right here. The Jerusalem above is called the free woman, which is Sarah Imenu, Sarah, our mother, the matriarch. She is considered to be the Jerusalem above. This is why it's important for us to be sons of Sarah and sons of Abraham, because we are outside of the confines of the natural. Okay, the Jerusalem above is like a heavenly thing. And heaven has to be brought down to earth, which is why when we become new creations in Mashiach, we bring heaven and earth in complete unity and break out of the natural limitations, all while staying within the natural limitations. 
which again goes with our Bihar drop that we just read from the overview. Continuing on in a Garrett to Hebrews chapter 12, still in verse 22, and it says, And to the myriads of Malachim in a Knesset innumerable. So Malachim, or Malachim, Slika, like Shalom Aleichem, Malachi Asharet, Malachi Elyom, Melek Malachi Hamlakim, Hamlakim, Hamelakim, like the angels. Okay, so anyway, that's what that definition is. Knesset is a, a gathering, an assembly, okay? So Knesset. Okay, this is why your shul can actually be called Beit Knesset. Like the the house of gathering. Say so, so anyway, there are innumerable angels here, and this is the Jerusalem above. This is the city of the living God, also known as Mount Zion. This is the mountain that we've come to. And Bihar, obviously being Mount Mount Sinai, but I still haven't found that source yet. Mount Sinai used to be connected to Mount Moriah, which is the holy temple mount where the temple's built. So we're in a sense coming to the unified mountain, which would be this mountain here in chapter 12 of Hebrews. So anyway, Bezard Hashem, I'll find that. So Hashem, I pray to you right now that you will lead me to that source on what is the source that says that uh, Mount Sinai and Har Moriah, Mount Moriah, were actually one mountain and that split into two, and that will ultimately be reunited in time to come. So please, will you show that source and be able to uh, share it here on the podcast? In the merit of Mashiach Yeshua, I pray. Amen. Voice of Yaakov, come on. All right, so verse 23, it says, And to the Kehelat HaBekorim, who are inscribed in Shemaim, Okay, and to the congregation of the firstborn who are inscribed in heaven, and to Hashem, the Shofet Hakol, the the uh, the judging voice, the voice of judgment, and to the Rukot, which is the spirits of the Zadikim, made Shlemim, made complete. So and to so there's a lot going on. So when we come to this mountain through Mashiach and through renewal, through being a new creation and Torah and as a Lapid, we're at Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the Jerusalem above, where there are myriads of angels and an assembly that you can't even count. And then this is also the congregation of the firstborn, because remember, Yisrael is called my firstborn. Yisrael is also Mashiach, because when Yisrael is called Echad, we are all many members of one body, which is Mashiach. So Yisrael and Mashiach are kind of synonymous, pretty much. And then it says, this is uh, those who are inscribed in Hashem. And we're hearkening to the voice of Hashem. And this is where the spirits of the righteous ones who are made complete is located. So we have a lot going on. This is why, you know, we're hearing things that we've never, ever heard before in our entire life as Lapidim. So anyway, continuing on, we're finally in verse 24. It says, and we've come to Yeshua, the mediator of a Brit Hadashah, a renewal of the covenant, and to the blood Ha Hazayah, which is the sprinkling blood, as talked about in Yeshayahu 52 15. 
which speaks better than the dam, which is blood of Hevel, which is Abel, the blood of Abel. So there are tons of Midrashim on Yeshayahu 52 and the blood of Hevel that uh, I would love to put in this podcast, but I do not have, I'm way over time now anyway, but uh, I did not bring that uh, information, but I will give one little drop from the Ibn Ezra on Yeshayahu 52 because this sprinkling blood of Mashiach is actually talked about here in a very esoteric way when you think about Mashiach's uh, public triumph over evil as it's brought down again in one of the Egerot um, that he publicly triumphed over the enemy through his crucifixion. <clears throat> think about that, you know, think about Mashiach's blood being spilled, him being crucified while he's publicly mocked, but this is actually him triumphing in victory over the forces of evil, re, uh, destroying the Klepot, uh, and bringing in a renewal for the whole entire world. So think about that as I say this. So quote, Yeshayahu 52, 15, it says, just so he shall startle many nations, kings shall be silenced because of him, for they shall see what has not been told to them. Again, they're seeing sounds. They're seeing what has not been told. And then it says, shall behold what they never have heard. Okay, so seeing the sounds, again, this is hearkening back to Mount Sinai, because remember, they saw the sounds. So through Mashiach becoming this great mountain, the great mountain before Zerubbabel, as brought down in the Tanakh. Now we have a greater mountain here, which is the Mount Zion from our Hebrews. Okay, Ibn Ezra comments, he says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. This verse is the explanation of the words, he will be high and exalted. As it was true, the words of the Hebrew text are, Hayah ken ka'asher, um, ka'asher, uh, amatnu, which is, the phrase that says, but if we compare them with the corresponding words in the antithesis, <clears throat> we are inclined to correct them into Hayaka Asher Zeman, as in there was a time. So he shall sprinkle many nations, Hayakin Ka Asher Imatenu, but the correct uh, way to say that is. Hayah Ka'asher Zaman. Okay, so they're playing around with uh, homiletics and uh, allusions and remez. Okay, so it says that his form was destroyed, his form, like his image, his manifestation, was destroyed in the sight of those who saw him. So truly will come the time when their oppressors. The Hebrew text has mehem, which is of them, so the oppressors of them, and refers to ha-re'im as those that saw them, but must be understood to refer to the enemies and oppressors of the Israelites. They will be punished. He will sprinkle the blood of many nations. 
And uh, that is also another way to read this verse. So again, that was very cryptic. But if you if you take away from this, like synthesize everything, it's saying that Mashiach's blood is sprinkling the many nations. It's astounding the kings. They're, he, they're being silenced and they're being dumbfounded because at the same time that he's being destroyed, he's also bringing destruction and punishment upon the enemies and the oppressors of Israel, of his nation. So the sprinkling of the blood of Mashiach Yeshua is like the double-edged sword that brings purification and um, what's that word? Vindication for us because we've been oppressed by evil enemies, death, bondage. And then at the same time as we're receiving that victory, there is also judgment and destruction going out to those who have placed us under bondage. So the sprinkling of Mashiach's blood as the mediator of this Brit Hadashah as brought down in a garret to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, is a very, very big deal. So, <clears throat> anyway, that was quite chunky, but Bezrat Hashem, that transferred and translated to everyone. Okay, so now moving on to uh, this next takeaway here. Let's see, for some reason, I decided to drop in Yeshayahu 53, because why? <laughs> the death of Mashiach was prophesied in scripture, and uh, Yeshayahu 53, verses 8 uh, through 9 in particular, but starting in verse 5, talking about him being pierced. Because again, how, do, how did the blood of Mashiach become uh, sprinkled? Not only was it when he was uh, undergoing the makot, which are the lashings, but it was through his piercings <clears throat> that his blood was also sprinkled. And namely the spear that was stuck into his side. It says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us shalom was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Not something past. Not something just present, but also something future and ongoing through Mashiach's piercings, through his blood, through his his uh, being destroyed, if you will, as brought down in 52 verse 15, that we are being healed. So cross reference verses is Egeret to Rome, chapter four, verse 25. He was delivered over to death for our trespasses and raised to life for our justification. So if you want to be justified and set right with Hashem, it's through Mashiach being delivered to death, dying for our trespasses, and then being raised. So you have to have the complete thing there. You can't just dissect it out and forget about his resurrection. Because if you look at his resurrection, what was the resurrection of Mashiach? It was him bringing us into a new level of Torah observance, one that was deeper, one that was more stringent, if you will, because now we don't follow the letter of the law. We go by the spirit of the law. This is why we're not under the law, but we're under grace. That's where that ties in. That means there's a deeper Torah that we're upholding. 
and uh, Shonuf Pincus actually brought down in Parashat Kedoshim sources that were telling us that in the time to come through the renewal that will happen uh, through the redemption, through Mashiach and all that, that we will actually, uh, the Torah will be null and void to us in, in the perspective that it's not even going to seem like it's a requirement because we're just, it's going to be so second nature. It's just like breathing, you know, like in other words, you don't have to force yourself to breathe. You don't have to set a, a bar or a command for yourself to say, hey, self, make sure you breathe. You know, breathing is involuntary. It happens. You just do it. Now, obviously, if you're holding your breath or if you're underwater or for some reason you don't want to smell stinky smells, then now you have to tell yourself not to breathe. But anyway, so that's the level of how we follow Torah. Hashem doesn't have to tell us to keep Shabbat because we're just going to do it. Hashem doesn't have to tell us eat kosher because we're just going to do it. And we're not going to be upset about it. We're actually going to take great joy in it. We're actually going to take kashrut to even deeper levels. We're not just going to be fine with the animal being kosherly slaughtered. We're going to be like, well, what did the lungs look like? Was there any disease or anything in this clean animal that was kosherly slaughtered? Because if there is, we're just going to hand that off to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, and sell that in the regular market. So that's why the meat will be cheaper uh, because it'll be actual meat that was rejected because of defects in the actual animal. It was culturally slaughtered, though, but it's just like, but I'm not going to eat a diseased animal. So I'm just going to hand this over. So y'all can have the diseased meat, I guess, if you want. Again, eating kosher is not only just something that you are free of those kind of circumstances for, but you're way beyond, <laughs> you know, uh, contaminated meat. So anyway, that's the level at which we follow Torah. So anyway, uh, the Agarit to the Corinth, chapter 15, verse 3. Again, we quoted this before. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Mashiach died for our sins according to Scripture. That's why I dropped in the Yeshayahu 53, and that's why we went over Ibn Ezra on Yeshayahu 52.15. Hebrews 5.8, it says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. We can learn Torah, by the way, from our sufferings, which is actually a very beautiful atonement for us because Hashem allows us to suffer to make atonement for us in this world so that it relieves us from suffering like we would had we uh, not undergone atonement here in this world. So in other words, if you're going through suffering in your life, you're taking away from suffering in the afterlife. Mazaltov. Okay, and then uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 says, So also Mashiach was offered once to bear the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, because why the redemption happens in two stages. So anyway, uh, it's so funny that that's actually Jewish commentary, that the redemption doesn't, all, doesn't happen all at once, it happens in parts. Just like the menorah, it's lit in parts. You light a few lamps and then you go off and do some other revoda and you come back and you light it up. We learned that actually in Parsha Teruma. So uh, just look into the Midrash on that. <clears throat> so continuing on this verse, says he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring Yeshua 
which is salvation, to those who eagerly await him. This is why it's important for us to be done, just be so done, so stick a fork in it, done with being in exile. We need to be yearning eagerly for the final redemption, the rebuilding of the temple, the return of Mashiach Yeshua, gathering us back into Eretz Israel. We should want to go home. Okay, we literally should be like, I want to go home. I'm done, you know, and obviously while we're in that mind frame, we should be making as many converts as possible because that's the ultimate way to go home faster is by making converts. So gather in the divine sparks, hand out those Lapid cards, invite people to shul, share the Aliyah day. Hopefully these podcasts that I'm sharing are beneficial to you to pass along to others. Okay. And um, just do all those things because we need to give people as much opportunity as possible to enter into the faith, to be grafted in. Okay. So, and then the final verse here, first Kepha. So his Agarit chapter two, 24 says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. You know, it's funny because a tree led us into sin, slavery, bondage, death, and disease, sickness, destruction. And through a tree, we're actually healed because Hashem uses that which wounds. He uses that also to heal. So you can call the tree that Mashiach was on the tree that actually caused us to get kicked out of the garden. And through his tree, we get brought back into the garden. So get you some on that. Says his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his stripes. You are healed. Now, the moat of Mashiach, the death of Mashiach, according to the scriptures, which again, scriptures is the Tanakh. So this is the Torah, the prophets and the writings. OK, this is also Tehillim. Tehillim is equivalent to the five books of Torah. And we talked about that. OK, there are five, quote unquote, books of Tehillim. If you have a source on Tehillim, it'll tell you book one, book two, book three, book four, book five, because it's likened to the Torah. Okay, so uh, then we got our Hebrews 12, 24 and our Yeshiahu 52, 15. That points all that out. Okay, so now let's go into the Agarit to Colossae chapter 3, verse 13. It says, being soy vel, which is bearing with one another and extending shlika, which is forgiveness to each other. If... It should be that one is murmuring his complaint against another, just as Adonanu extended Slika to you, so also should you extend Slika. Okay, because again, in our section here in chapter 2 to the Agarit to Rome, we're talking about the fact that we need to be uh, forgiving. We need to be Eric Apayim. We need to be slow to anger and forbearing, okay? So even though all of this stuff is going on, that's the attitude we need to have. And Bezrat Hashem, through doing that, um, everyone will be able to change their ways. The offenders will be brought in to renewal, okay? Rescue from the kingdom of darkness. Mark 11, uh, Mashiach says this in 25 and 26 says, and when you stand davening, grant shlika and forgiveness if something you hold against someone 
in order that your Avinu Shabashamayim, your father who is in heaven, may grant you shlika for your Peshaim, your transgressions. But if you do not give Mekila forgiveness, okay, Mekila is another way to say forgive. It says, neither will your Chataim, your sins, receive shlika. Okay, so you have to give Mekila in order to receive shlika. Mechila comes from the word mechal, which means to blot out. And even in uh, the Hasidic insights to Bihar, it was talking about how Hashem is like the shade slika at your right hand. And there's this whole thing that Hashem responds, Mita Kenegat Mita. So if we're handing out mechila to people, then Hashem is going to give us slika, which is forgiveness. And if we're blotting out and annulling people's sins and giving them remissions of debts, which is also Parsha Bihar, because when you look at the Shemitah and the Yovel, everyone is released from their debts if they have incurred any. Slaves are set free. So all debts have been paid, you know, even though someone may have not finished their payment back to you, you have to blot it out. You have to just let it go. Fresh slate for everybody. Okay, and so now going into the fact that there's also this beautiful drop here on the word machal, and it literally says to forego the honor due to one's self. Now, I'm going to just go out on a big old limb and branch here that someone who is repressing the truth of Hashem and just really not flowing with the standards and the law of Hashem. If they would be people who ask Hashem for forgiveness and blot themselves out and get rid of their own honor, I'm pretty sure they would not judge anyone else, first of all, and condemn others. And then second of all, they would not be adamantly disobedient to the voice of Hashem. I'm just going to go out on a big old limb and guess that. Okay. So now I would love to close. Oh, before I do that, I want to, uh, this is all going to come from Midrash Tankuma. So from this point on, everything I'm about to say is from Midrash Tankuma. So starting in Zav uh, 14, I want you to know this. That now that the temple is destroyed, it starts off with a question. It says, but now that the temple was destroyed, what can we do about our sins and about our guilt? So HaKadosh Baruchus, blessed be he. HaKadosh Baruchu is the Holy One, blessed be he. Said to them, if you want that you should be atoned for, keep my laws. If you want to be atoned now that the temple is destroyed, keep my laws. Walk in my standards, walk in my gazettes, my gazettes, my laws. That's your atonement. Because, you know, the righteous shall live by faith. And if you're righteous, you're set right with Hashem, which means you're atoned for. This is how Abraham was considered righteous. So anyway, uh, it says, continuing on, it says, and I will count it for you as if you did a sacrifice in front of me. So with the temple destroyed, we can still bring sacrifices by keeping the laws of Hashem. That's Tankuma Zav 14. Uh, and then, 
Tankumazab 14, down a little further, it says the word altar, which is Mizbayak, is an acronym. Because, you know, when you're bringing your sacrifices, they go on the altar. They go on the Mizbayak. So what is the Mizbayak that we're putting our Corbinote on? It says the Mizbayak is an acronym for Mekila, which is pardon. Because remember, we're blotting out people's sins against us. That our sins may be blotted out. And then it says, it also stands, okay, so that's the Mem, the Zayin, because we're spelling out Mizbayak. Zayin is for Zekut, which is merit. As it gives them merit for the world to come. So we're gaining merit for the world to come when we're blotting out sins and living the laws of Hashem and uh, handing out forgiveness to others. And then it says the uh, the Chet. Uh, Sleeka, I skipped one. The the bet first. So we got the mem, which is makila, pardoning, blotting out, and then we got the zayin, which is the zakut, the merit, and then we got the bet, which is baraka, which is blessing. As Hakadosh Baruchu gives them blessing through it in the deeds of their hands. This is why it's important for us to recite brachot as we're drinking water, as we're using the restroom, as we are partaking of food before and after, because that's a part of us making atonement for ourselves and, uh, you know, walking in the ways of Hashem and showing who the true owner is. And it's not our way, but it's his way. And finally, we got the chet which is Chaim, which is life, as they merit through it to life in the world to come. One who leaves all of these on the altar, okay? So we put uh, Mechila, Zechut, Braka, and Chaim, okay? We extend that freely to people. Now, my conclusion will be from Midrash Tankuma Vayikra 8, because this is a beautiful picture of showing, you know, who's in charge, you know, and just thinking about, um, thinking about that statement, thinking about Bihar, who's in charge. So Midrash Tankuma Vayikra 8. Going to that. So this is pretty much like me doing a story time. So I'm going to borrow from my Haftarah podcast and say, Story time! Come on! And the Lord designated a great fish to swallow Yonah. And Yonah was in the innards of the fish three days and three nights. Yonah 2.1 and Yonah entered its mouth like a man enters a large synagogue. And the two eyes of the fish were like opened windows, giving light to Yonah. Rabbi Mir said, A pearl was hanging in the innards of the fish, and it would give light to Yonah, like the sun lights up in its strength in the afternoon. And Yonah could see everything that was in the sea and what and that was in the depths. And as it is stated, 
Tehillim 9711, light is planted for the righteous and joy for the righteous of heart. The fish said to Yonah, do you not know that my time has come to be eaten into the mouth of the Leviathan? He said to it, take me there and I will save you and my soul. It took him to the Leviathan. He said to the Leviathan, because of you have I come to see your dwelling place in the sea. And not only that, but in the future, I will come down to put a rope on your neck and to bring you up for the great meal of the righteous ones. He showed it his seal from Abraham, our father, i.e. his circumcision. The Leviathan saw it and fled the journey of two days from before Yonah. He said to the fish, Behold, I saved you from the mouth of the Leviathan. Now show me all that is in the sea and in the depths. And so it showed him the great river of the waters of the ocean, as it is stated, Yonah 2.6, Up to my soul was the deep. And it showed him the paths of the red, literally the reed sea. As it is stated, reeds are twined around my head. And it showed him the place from where the breakers of the sea and its waves go out. As it is stated, Yonah 2.4, all your breakers and waves passed over me. And it showed him the pillars of the earth and its foundation. As it is stated, Yonah 2.7, the bars of the earth were around me forever. And it showed him Gehenna, as it is written, Yonah 2, 3, from the belly of the pit I cried out, you heard my voice. And it showed him under the chamber of God as it is stated, Yonah 2, 7, I descended to the bases of the mountains. From here we learn that Jerusalem stands on seven mountains. And he saw the stone of the foundation there, the foundation stone, set in the depths. He saw that the sons of Korach standing and praying upon it. He saw the sons of Korach standing and praying upon it, the foundation stone. It said to Yonah, behold, you are standing under the chamber of Adonai. Pray and you shall be answered. Immediately, Yonah said to the fish, stand in the place that you are standing as I would like to recite a prayer. And the fish stopped, and Yonah began to pray in front of Hakadosh Baruchu, Master of the Universe. You have been called the one that brings down and raises up. Behold, I have gone down. Now raise me up. You have been called the one that brings death and that brings life. Behold, my soul has reached death. Now bring me life. And he was not answered until this came out from his mouth. Yonah 2.10 That which I have vowed, I will fulfill. That which I have vowed, which is to bring up the Leviathan in front of you, I will fulfill, which is on the day of Yisrael's salvation. As it is stated, But I with loud thanksgiving will sacrifice to you that which I have vowed. And immediately Hakadosh Baruch Hu indicated to the fish, and it spewed Yonah out to the dry land, as it is stated, Yonah 2.11. And Adonai said to the fish, and it spewed Yonah out to the dry land.
when the sailors saw all of the great miracles, signs, and wonders that Hakadosh Baruchu did with Yonah, they got up and every man cast away his God, as it is stated, Yonah 2 9. They who preserve the vanities of emptiness forsake their kindness. And they went back to Jaffa, to Jaffa, and went up to Jerusalem, and they circumcised the flesh of their foreskin, as it is stated, Yonah 1 15. And the men feared a great fear of Adonai, and they slaughtered a sacrifice to Adonai. They made vows. And did they slaughter a sacrifice? Question mark. Rather, this was circumcision, which is like the blood of a sacrifice. Each man of them vowed to bring his children and everything that he had to the God of Yonah. And they vowed and they fulfilled it. And about them, it is said, the converts were righteous converts. End of selection. So why did I share all of this information? Because the end of our section of the Agarit, Romans chapter 2, 1 through 4, verse 4 says, Do you think lightly of the wealth, of the generosity, of the kindness, and the slowness to anger? And the patience of Hashem disregarding the fact that Hashem's kindness is to lead you to Teshuva. Whether it's us or whether it's anyone who is suppressing the truth of Hashem, they're left without excuse. We are all without excuse because we know full well the just standards of Hashem. And just because we are currently in this position doesn't mean we have to stay in this position. Just because someone is currently in that position doesn't mean they have to stay in it. But we are called, all of us, to show forth the kindness and the salvation of Hashem. And it should cause us to make shuva, just like the sailors who were with Yonah. We should see the great wonders that have been done with Hashem's anointed, i.e. Mashiach Yeshua. And it should cause us all to make true teshuva, to turn away from lawlessness, and to turn to salvation to righteousness to walking in the laws of Hashem causing us to forgive freely causing us to blot out people's sins and our own egos and forgo our own honor that that we should receive none of us should be in a place of being the judge of receiving honor and what standard of honor we should receive because in parasha bihar Hashem lets us know we don't own anything and we are actually slaves to him. And if we want to not be slaves to him and call ourselves owner to these things, then we will be thrown into a downward spiral of spiritual degeneration. And ultimately, that is the current state of the world today. But with the help of Hashem, those of us who have taken up the, the mantle of the Lapid, we are fighting back. We're standing as heroes in a dark time, and we're using our superpowers to bring the final redemption and to gather in the divine sparks. So may Hashem empower us to do so, and may we soon see our king return, and may we soon see our temple, and may we soon be gathered into our homeland, Eretz Israel, speedily and soon in our days. HaKadosh Baruch Baruch Abba B'Shem Adonai Adonai Yimlok Le'olam Va'ed. 
Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu Torah temet, vechayeh olam natabetokheinu. Baruch atah Adonai, noten ha Torah. Amen.